Um, firstly, I'd like to just acknowledge the traditional owners of this country, the people of the Kulin Nation, and just pay our respects to their elders, past and present. And also just to um, pay respect to the elders who are in the room. There's a sense too that uh, a life lived in a meaningful way brings knowledge to any discussion and any, any table. So that wonderful sense of everyone coming together and bringing your wisdom and knowledge to the table is always a, a great thing. If I haven't met you already, sorry, um, I'm Wesley Enoch. I'm here as the head provocateur. So I will provoke your head, apparently. <laughs> but um, my background is I'm currently the artistic director of the Queensland Theatre Company and I've, I've just been appointed. I'm the artistic director designate for the Sydney Festival, so I'll take up that job at the end of October. And a lot of my work has been uh, mostly in Indigenous storytelling uh, and looking at telling stories uh, of both Indigenous Australia and, and, um, and, and families in particular and, and what that's meant. And I, I guess a very strong kind of political sense of what how stories can make a difference, how stories can make a change. And there's great people around the room that I've collaborated with at certain times, so it's great to have you here. And people I acknowledge the dual body of work as well. To my right is uh, Deborah Cheatham, who is uh, not head provocateur. What would you be? Side... I'm assistant side, provocateur. Assistant provocateur. Um, and has joined us to... I'm the barrel girl. <laughs> no. To, um, does that make me the barrel? <laughs> Maybe. The, uh, so Deborah's here. That we'll have a bit of a conversation at some point as well. To give his apologies, uh, Tony Birch was going to join us tonight, but in fact uh, just had to pull out late yesterday afternoon. His father has had to go into hospital, well, yesterday and now tonight for uh, a heart uh, operation. So he, um, he gives his apologies. The format of tonight, many of you may have done the Supper Club before, so you might know more about the format, but as I understand it, as we are going to create it tonight, is a, a sense of, I'm going to wrap it on for about 10, 15 minutes about some of the ideas around the theme and talk a little bit about, um, well, the theme, and I'll, 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 I'll elucidate you on a little later. And then Deborah and I will continue that with a bit more of a conversation around that. During that time, if you want to kind of pass a little note, as opposed to interjecting, pass a little note and go, actually, just like that and pass it around. Or if you want to create something anonymously, which is also sometimes a little bit of a safety net, so you don't feel like you have to be asking what people might think of as dumb questions. And if we can say that tonight there is no such thing as a dumb question, everything's open, because that's the way I think we will embrace things and move, move beyond assumptions and move to things that we can actually talk. And please help yourself to the cheese and, and grapes as we go. Then there will be, after about that, that time, somewhere around 8 o'clock-ish, uh, or 10 to 8 perhaps, there will be uh, a magnificent meal provided and we can take you know, a good 20 minutes to consume that. Uh, and then we'll come back from that to have a more open conversation with the whole table, uh, if we can. Uh, that wonderful sense of you know, throwing in things and asking questions of each other along the way. And if in fact you get a little bit, you, know, you want to put forward an idea, put it forward, and we can have a bit of an argy-bargy. I love a bit of an argy-bargy. I think that's a, that's a good way to get, a, get across some stuff. 
So if you're happy with all that, we'll kind of move, move along. What I'd love to do, though, is just because I haven't met everyone, is even just to go around the table and just even say your name and where you come from. That would be pretty amazing. So what if we do it um, clockwise? Natasha, independent producer, theatre maker. I'm Australian Chinese. Um, my name is Asin, um, and I'm an installation and performance artist. Um, I am originally from Jerusalem. I'm Palestinian, and um, yeah, that's it. I've been in Melbourne eight months. So just a bit eight months. Eight months. Wow. Uh, my name's Emma, and I'm a curator at Acme, the Australian Centre. I'm Julianne Martin. I'm implementing and developing Western Health's inaugural Arts in Health program. My name is Dina. I'm uh, from Melbourne originally. I've just moved back from eight years in Canada. My background is in dance. I'm Louise Siverson. I'm an actress uh, and I was born here in Melbourne. So but I work wherever. <laughs> <laughs> My name's Luke, uh, and I'm currently working at Melbourne Fringe Festival. My name's Xanthi, I'm a theatre maker, I'm originally from Brisbane, and um, I do lots of different things, and I'm currently working at Melbourne Fringe as well. I'm Felix, uh, I'm from uh, New Zealand, uh, I've lived here for about five years now, and uh, had a theatre practice, but now I work for Melbourne Fringe as a producer. Yes. Fringe Quarter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Your launch looked amazing. Thank you. <laughs> um, my name's Megan. I'm the executive director at Next Wave Festival, and until quite recently, I also worked at Melbourne Fringe. <laughs> and I'm originally from Brisbane. And my name is Deborah Cheatham, and I've met 
this corner and it's lovely to meet this corner and some ladies down the end that I was speaking to earlier. Uh, I also add my respects to the people of the Wurundjeri and the Bunurang of the Kulin Nation in particular and to my own grandmother's country, the Yorta Yorta. I came to, uh, I came to Melbourne from Sydney uh, just about 10 years ago and uh, you know it's very interesting to hear the stories little stories of uh, I came to hear from somewhere else because you've been through what I've been through, I'm sure, in that embrace of the arts community of Melbourne, which is a really particular and nurturing experience, or at least it has been for me. I guess principally I am a musician uh, in particular, I'm an opera singer, and about eight years ago I decided that I wanted to create an Indigenous opera company so that's pretty much been consuming my entire life since that point in time in various uh, other positions at the Victorian College of the Arts, of course, and uh, uh, recently on the, um, what world were you called, where the, where the expert reference panel of um, <laughs> Creative Industries, Inc. Uh, look, we make our contributions in whatever way we can. And I think tonight is a particularly welcome contribution. So thank you for asking me, Wesley. Thanks for having us. Or well, thanks for being here. Thanks for being had. Whatever the right <laughs> saying is. Um, the, the conversation tonight is going to start around the ideas of um, the Recognise campaign, which people might know, which is talking about recognising Indigenous Australians in the Constitution. And when uh, Ang Harrod asked me to, to, to think about a topic, in fact, I was first asked to do this about six months ago. I didn't know, you know, what the topic would be. And the topic kind of came to me in just in this last three weeks, when we see as a background or as a backdrop the treatment of um, Adam Goods. And you go, oh, what's going on there? And this idea of the recognised campaign and saying, what, what are we trying to do as a nation if you like to legislate out racism or to remove racism from our central document, our constitution? What does it look like and why is it there in the first place? And is it even possible? I must admit I'm a little ambivalent about the whole recognised campaign because I feel that I don't quite get the sense of the urgency of it at the moment. I don't, get, I don't understand why it needs to happen. And so this last few weeks uh, researching for, for this talk, this conversation, has really been about going, questioning myself, where do I sit? Am I pro or am I against or am I on the fence? Which um, is a very uncomfortable place to sit around this issue. To really understand it, I think we have to go back to some of the foundation documents and the foundation ideas. So if we go back to you know, 1788 or 1770 for that matter, and we think about the, the notion of terra nullius, that this land was in fact empty. If we remember at that period of time, the American War of Independence had just happened and there was a sense that the British Empire had lost a major asset and it needed to claim somewhere. And so Australia, George III sent out uh, 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 Arthur Philip to claim and make a colony in Australia to, if you like, replace the American colonies. That's my reading of it anyway. And they were charged with the idea of terra nullius. Though the argument is that uh, Arthur Philip um, had a, a way of engaging with the indigenous people in Sydney in particular, but never entered into any form of treaty. And that that was replicated again and again and again with all the other colonies around, that there was no real engagement uh, through a formal treaty with the Indigenous Australians. 
um, uh, there was the whole Batman experience where there were the blankets and the mirrors, the scissors, uh, the threads and axes, thank you, there were a range of things that were given in payment for what would become the colony or version of the colony of, of Melbourne, uh, but no formal uh, acknowledgement of Indigenous Australians was ever made. No treaty exists even to this day. Fast forward now to the to Federation. Oh, sorry, sorry. Then each of the colonies became, you know, uh, heads of uh, different states, and each of those states had constitutions that were written up with the lack of Indigenous Australians in them. And in some cases, in Queensland in particular, uh, a whole range of what would become incredibly uh, racially charged language around the treatment of, its, of the people living within those borders. Uh, you have to remember in Queensland, I was saying this to Deborah, and she had never heard the the... The, the idea before of blackbirding, where in Queensland in particular, uh, uh, forms of slavery. So what would happen is uh, plantation owners, sugar plantation or any kind of plantation owners, would go off to the South Pacific and pick up uh, people from those islands and then transport them because their dark skin made them uh, um, better workers in the hot sun, that they would then come and work on the plantations in, in, in Queensland. Um, so that was a, a, a big thing that happened. So there were large populations of uh, South Pacific uh, people in, in Queensland at the time. And so the, the Queensland Constitution, as it was written, made ways, uh, made words so that they could uh, refer to different racial groups within the Queensland Constitution. This is just how it worked. Then when we start getting the movement to federation, there were big discussions about what our foundation document would be, what the constitution of Australia would be. And what we find then is a negotiation around all the constitutions of the, all the colonies of the Commonwealth to form what would be something that could be agreed upon. This is the basis of the White Australia policy as well. We understand the White Australia policy as, you know, who we allow into our country is based on well, often, colour of your skin and who you could govern and who you couldn't govern because of that. At that point in time, in the foundation document in 1901 eventually, the document talks about uh, counting and being able to govern Australians except for Indigenous people. That that's what was written into the constitution. All should be counted, I can't remember the exact wording, all the numbers of Australians should be counted all except the Aboriginal people, the native population. This is the, the section that gets changed in 1967, so that the Australian government can make laws, can make policies, can do programs specifically for Indigenous Australians. So the Constitution has, for that 66 years, these very racial terms in them, and they still exist now. The recognised campaign, here we go, and that's 45 years ago we're talking about, in fact less, it's 40, uh, well, 50, 50 years in, in um, 2017. It'll be 50 years since that referendum. And one of the, the last referenda that, were, that has ever been successful in this country. So fast forward now, the recognised campaign is about saying, we want to remove the specific language around race. The race uh, language that, hey love, how are ya? Come in, grab some cheese, grab a drink the specific language around race that allows the government to still prejudice, uh, to, to, to make laws in a prejudicial way against certain racial groups. So it, it's interesting to look at that history and how we have, over the last 
200 years, pro uh, uh, promulgated these, still these ideas that race makes a difference in the way we create uh, laws. Um, one of the, the, the websites I, I read in preparation for this talked about that these, these powers that the Commonwealth have about racially specific programs have been the things that have driven the intervention in the Northern Territory that you can create specific laws and processes because the Constitution allows that. Uh, the, the basics card was introduced to Indigenous populations first because the law allows that to happen. Uh, uh, and you know, that law has been used several times against Indigenous Australians as well. The recognised campaign, as I see it, is wanting to remove all the racial language so that all citizens in this country are treated equally under the law. And there are now fears that by taking out that racial language, specific Indigenous programs might suffer along the way. So, you know, uh, interesting things. But the idea that our constitution was written with these huge range of, of experiences and practices uh, is something that's, that's just frustrating me at, at the moment as well. Um, I read one little article which talked about the, the Chinese, especially on the gold fields, and that, there were, that some of this racial language was also about kind of how we deal with huge numbers of what we considered other people uh, in, a, in our country, and that our constitution was all about that as well. So that's a kind of big, rough thing from there. Um, I wondered whether, in fact, we're going about it the wrong way. That the, in 67, there seemed to be a natural kind of community push. Most of the push happened from uh, the grassroots. Um, uh, coming back from World War II, uh, where indigenous soldiers and non-indigenous soldiers, men mostly, were fighting side by side, there was a natural kind of evolution to the community movement which came through in, in the 67 referendum, coming back through you know, the, the, the reconstruction phase of the 50s and into the 60s. In fact, there was a, a fantastic story. Faith Bandler talks about this story, but I remember um, um, Anikath uh, Ujuru Nunakal talk, told the story of being in a, 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 a function with Menzies, like a, a discussion around uh, constitutional change and the need to recognise Indigenous Australians. And... Uh, they had a long discussion and then, you know, dinner was going to be served or something like that. And Menzi said, fine, fine, fine. Let's just go, let's retire to this area and have a drink. And offered Anikath a drink and said, you know, would you like a whiskey or something, Kath? Now, Anikath was a great storyteller, so I don't know, you know, what's true and what's not. But apparently at that point in time, she said, excellent. She took the drink and she said, now in Queensland, you would be jailed for this. In Northern Territory, I would be jailed for this. And then she went through state by state what it meant to be serving alcohol to an Indigenous person. And at that point, he, um, he, he had still said he wouldn't uh, go, to the, uh, go to the people with a referendum referenda again because of the uh, communism referendum that got defeated. He, he really swore off them. So it wasn't until he retired in 66 and Harold Holt, wherever he is swimming now, is he took the... Uh, the, re the 67 referendum to the people. So that's that interesting kind of time. But the sense of can you legislate out racism if it's not a community movement, if it's not a sense of understanding from the grassroots? Uh, 
Noel Pearson just recently, and, and a number of, uh, Pat Dodson, and a number of in Indigenous leaders have been saying, actually, we need to go back to the grassroots and talk about this because it's moving much faster than, than we're ready. And I look at what happened with Adam Goods and I go, yeah, the, the commentary around that, which was, it's almost like we have no language to identify racism as a society. That's not true, but, you know, broad generalisation. When people can say, no, we're not booing Adam because, um, you know, we're, we're booing him because we don't like him, because he did that thing with the girl and pointed out to her that she was being racist. And you go, well, well that's racial. You know, that's racial. That's, that's actually racism because you're doing it on... because you, he's speaking out. He's trying to make a difference. He's trying to point things out. And that we, we, even now, people come up to me and say, if you see Adam Goods, just tell him, that's not racism. And you go, well, I'm sorry, love, but it is racism. This particular woman said to me, you know, no, the, booing a player is just booing a player. And you go, well, how come they weren't, they weren't booing him, you know, uh, two years ago, three years ago? Well, it's because he pointed to that girl. And you go, well, you realise that's because he was pointing out a, a racial slur. Yes, but people just have to suck that up. And there is a general sense that you just have to suck it up. And if you want to make a difference, if you want to call it out, then we do still, as a society, have a way of kind of suppressing it. So I'm, I'm kind of caught with this idea of going, oh, can you just legislate it away? Or is it something that has to be a people's movement? Now, the other thing I came up against, or came up uh, in the research, which I found absolutely fascinating, is that if we find full recognition in the Constitution, that will it undo sovereignty? The argument being that there has been no war, there has been no defeat of the indigenous population of this country, and sovereignty has not been ceded to, to a, a, um, a conquering body. The, the English, a British kind of monarchy, who is still the head of state, has has we, no sovereignty has been ceded to them because there's been no formal recognition. So in fact, by entering into discussions around the constitution, are we starting to say we have given up the idea that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are sovereign to this country, which would change the debate wholly? And I wrote down a couple of little things here around what has happened in, in kind of, in quick succession. The idea of, you know, terra nullius has been a denial of indigenous sovereignty. The idea of uh, extermination, either through, you know, frontier wars or, in fact, even, you know, the health, the, the effects of uh, smallpox epidemics and all those kind of things. It, it's interesting. In 19... Let me get this right. 1979... Or, uh, sorry, 1779... Uh, about two-thirds of the Aboriginal population of the Sydney area were wiped out with a smallpox epidemic. Like, it's written in the Tench Diaries and things, how, you know, Aboriginal people would be floating in the harbour with the smallpox sores and all that kind of stuff, that there's been this kind of extermination phase, be it consciously or unconsciously, through a whole range of things. So that, that's kind of been an active thing to look at. The um, idea of uh, concentration or centralising that through different processes we've been centralising a concentration, you know, that notion of a concentration camp, concentrating Indigenous people into certain areas as a way of controlling and uh, um, shifting them, and through that a breakdown of social structures. So, you know, uh, um, the idea of uh, 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 
kinship, skin names, uh, social practices through song, dance, language. All of this has been going along the way to break down social structures. And then, of course, the assimilation policies that we all are pretty familiar with. And I think just recently, we've been starting to see the denial of heritage. You know, the notion of, and I hate to say his name, but I'll say Andrew Bolt. This notion that we now are starting to deny heritage, that yes, 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 your family's Aboriginal, but that's not all who you are. And in my case, you know, I've got a great-grandfather who's Spanish and a great-grandmother who's Danish. I've got uh, a great-great-grandfather who's a Filipino man who got shipwrecked on Strabrak Island and a great-great-grandfather from Rotoma Island in the South Pacific. But I also have a whole range of Indigenous clans that kind of flow through my veins and that you don't want to deny any one of those things. But now we're seeing a public discourse around denial of heritage, that there is a sense, and maybe it's been an age-old one, a sense that you are not Indigenous if you, know, you have mixed blood, if you have mixed heritage, and how does that all work? So, you know, and whose choice is it to be Indigenous or not Indigenous? So these, these kind of things, I think, are built into our understanding of what Aboriginal Australia is. The terrenalias, the extermination, the concentration, the breakdown of social structures and the assimilation, and now this denial of, of heritage. So I guess this notion of ceding sovereignty, giving over sovereignty, is one that I don't think we're talking about enough this acknowledgement of Aboriginal um, ownership, for want of a better term, of the land, has not entered into the debate in this last little while, talking about sovereignty. And so I wanted to go, oh, actually, I think there needs to be something else. Um, and why I think it was great um, like for Deborah and I to come together is we're, we're both artists, we're both storytellers. And this notion that as storytellers, we have a responsibility, a right, a power in our storytelling to to make a change or to highlight ideas. And why is it that, well, I'll talk to myself, I don't feel compelled to tell stories about this yet. I don't feel the urgency. I feel that there's, it's moving faster than, than anything else. And so, Deborah, I'm going to throw open to you even your responses about this or, or how, how you feel this is going. It's interesting. Recognition campaign. I mean, can I just have an, an idea of the, the awareness that's in the room about it? I mean, beyond, beyond a logo or maybe even that, what, what would be the awareness of the recognition campaign? Is it something that everyone's heard of, at the very least? Uh, but would you be able to articulate to somebody else who hadn't heard about it what it's, what it's all about, what its main platform is, its trajectory? I think that sort of goes to what you're saying, uh, Wesley, right there, that things are moving very quickly in one sense, and yet, gosh, are they moving so slowly. Too slowly for my mother, who died at the statistical age of 64. You know, too slowly. Too slowly for my grandmother. Way too slow, and yet... In another way, we're just rushing past all the detail in the, in the non-nuanced way that so much of Australia's history has been written by the winners. And so I am sceptical about it. But in this room, we have other Aboriginal people at the table and they will have their nuanced opinion. And that's what you should expect. Because you can't 
throw... I mean, we haven't had the conversation, Maria and I, but I'm sure Maria will uh, enlighten us later on about her feelings on this. I just know that you can't throw a blanket over anything and expect a nuanced approach. This land was never given up. You know, it's a line from a song that you would all be familiar with when Dr. Yunapingu sang it. This land was never given up. This land was never bought and sold, except with the lives of the people who were sacrificed in the frontier wars. I think I have been waiting. I'm not a patient person, I suppose. No more patient than anybody else here, I think. We're all artists, so we're impatient to see our ideas come to fruition and to live. But I've been waiting for someone to actually convince me of the Recognise campaign. And I've spoken to leadership from the Recognise campaign and I've said, convince me. And there hasn't been a depth of understanding of what it really will mean to us as Australians, to all of us as Australians. It's funny how we talk about mixed race, isn't it? I guess um, if I look at um, my grandparents, I have uh, Irish on one side, uh, which is, is quite common. Um, I... <laughs> you know, I think of myself as an artist, first and foremost, in the morning when I wake up, um, particularly as a soprano, as I am the actual instrument. I think, you know, here I am having some beautiful cider. I recommend it to all of you. Uh, that's because I'm not singing tomorrow, okay, so I can have my cider. When will the time come... How many generations do you think it's going to take when you can say that, oh, yes, I'm a Gadigal woman because I was born in that part of Sydney? Mm -hmm. What depth of knowledge and understanding would it take? Because I think that we can't just plan for five years, ten years, fifty, a hundred. We have to be able to plan the way that our ancestors planned. And Wesley touched on it before, and I'm by no means an expert, so please don't ask me to explain kinship laws to you, and they, they vary and they're nuanced again throughout this great continent. But our ancestors planned so that kinship would allow for one of the most um, protected gene pools to advance throughout conservatively 50,000 years. I mean, we know it's more like 80,000, but I usually give a non-Indigenous audience 30,000 years in small change. <laughs> we knew, our ancestors knew how to preserve that gene pool through marriage, but marriage couldn't take place. Well, that's the wrong word. Marriage is a funny word, but through that connection and the production of children from that connection. That was very carefully engineered and none of it took place without knowledge. How long do you reckon, this is a question I want to ask, will it take Australia for 
everyone who's living here to be able to say, I am from this country. The first time I heard a non-Indigenous person say that, it was Libby Gore. And I, I, something dragged me out of bed on a Sunday morning at some go ungodly hour to go and do an interview with her at ABC. I think the subwoofer, I might give them a few <laughs> tips. I went along and we were, we were about to do an interview and she said to me, I'm yorta yorta like you because I was born in Echuca. Mm. And it was breathtaking. Like I wasn't ready for that the first time it happened. I wasn't ready for that. And that was a year or so ago, and I've thought about that a lot since then. Isn't that surely where we have to end up? I wonder if that's what our ancestors wanted. I, I say this to just about any age group over the age of 16. We could have killed you all. Those first colonisers, it was possible in the very early days. We could have saw to it that you would perish and not be able to find what you needed. It is in our way. There's this fundamental philosophy that I really believe, and, and I'm just summing it up in my own 21st century, you know, certain amount of privilege, education, whatever else labels you can stick on me. But I think there is a fundamental principle at work that I've seen in Aboriginal Australia, in Indigenous Australia. And that is that there's enough for everyone. And more than that, that everyone should have enough. Mm. And I was talking about this um, with some ladies up the end here with um, Dina and, and Louise and Julianne. Uh, as artists, you know, we were saying, boy, these days or maybe at any time, we have to cling on to that opportunity, that role that, you know, there's this feeling of, you know, we're all pitted against one another as artists from time to time, particularly in the funding arena. Let's not go there for a moment. <laughs> um, can, I, can I intervene just for a quick second? Sure. That notion of, you know, can we go back to that time mm. and change... Well, I mean, we can't change history. We haven't got that power to, to change time. But can we go back to those fundamental principles now and recreate this country? I'm, I'm just thinking about, you know, the, the, a constitutional change where you actually go, actually, what if we just disallow the constitution and we write it from scratch yes. with all those principles in place? Is that possible? Jermaine Greer talks about this in her uh, her quarterly essay. This is going back a few years now. Uh, jump up, white fella, white fella, jump up, I think, where she talks about the idea of being able to wake up every morning, look in the mirror and say, I am Aboriginal of this country and how would an Aboriginal person think and operate mm. today in this world? That's a paraphrase. But that sense of can we undo the stuff that's happened and create a social structure that takes into account Aboriginal knowledge, Indigenous knowledge of this country? Of course. I think yes to all of your questions because we've just lived through that in 230 years. We've seen a complete change of a society which was the most sustainable on the, on the face of the planet and I think we actually can't afford not to. I think that history can be changed. Well, at least it needs to be written accurately. I should be on commission from Bruce Pascoe because wherever I go, I talk about his book, Dark <laughs> Emu. So is there anybody who's had a chance to read that no. here? Have you had a look at it? 
It is dark emu. Dark emu is your is your weapon of choice. You're arming yourself with knowledge, knowledge that will give you pride in what existed here, pre-colonised Australia. See, it's hard to connect. I think that that's why people go so far north to the exotic parts of Aboriginal Australia, where the real Aboriginal people all live, of course, in Arnhem Land, the Kimberley, and the you know the mm, Western yeah, yeah. Desert. And that's not to be disrespectful to my brothers and sisters who are in those parts of Australia, but there are a lot of Indigenous Australians. There are more Aboriginal people living in, in Melbourne than in Arnhem Land, numerically. Mm. So I think we can rewrite history to be more accurate. I think that what Bruce Pascoe has done in Dark Emu is he's talked about the agriculture of and the society of Aboriginal existence on this continent, pre-colonisation. It's Magabala books, if you're looking it up. Every page that I read <laughs> has one of those little sticky notes on it, every <laughs> single one. It's just got this rainbow colour down the side of the, the book because there was another fact that I could equip anybody with and say, how about this? Don't you feel proud to be part of the only nation on the face of the planet planet that can lay claim to this longest continuing culture? But this is the issue with the the, the current debate for me is often a, it's all about the deficit model, even the closing oh the gap kind of. Um, uh, We're looking at the wrong language. gap. Yeah. The language of deficit, honestly, I see it in education all the time. It is heartbreaking that children are presented to me, you know, I, I work with younger children at the moment in a particular program and oh, nine times out of ten you're going to community and the, the language is all deficit around these kids and yet what, what we're failing to see is what these kids already come equipped with, like any child. <laughs> you know, there was a great book that I read once when I was much younger. Actually, it wasn't a book, it was a short story where this premise that you're born knowing everything and then you... You, you gradually forget. And there's somewhere around 20 when you're sure you know everything and then you, you definitely <laughs> do forget. So I think um, that we need to arm people with a whole lot of information. And my trajectory is towards that day when people can really claim, not just like a lot of people do now, oh, my God, if every Indigenous... If every issue which Indigenous people face was solved right now here tonight, there would be so many white people out of work in this country. <laughs> it would be unbelievable. There is such an industry mm. around Indigenous Australia which is necessary and also cumbersome and a little bit exploitative and there are lots of things we could talk about well, in that. Well, that notion that people have a vested interest in keeping... in Like, if you are making money out of... Uh, 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 indigenous health, you have a vested interest in keeping us unhealthy. Sure, like you know, the drug that kind of terrible yeah. kind of logic in it yeah. as well. I'm going to push us a little harder on this one. Do you think, like, obviously, there's a power differential here that you know there seems to be, and also a, a sense that that we are a relatively small part of the population. Though it's interesting to think too that Indigenous Australia, we have an inverted um, uh, uh, population pyramid that in fact 50%, uh, I'm going to make the figures slightly round, uh, over 50% of Indigenous Australians are under 30. 
So there's this kind of, you know, the, the, the health issues, the infant mortality, we're dealing with things. And so we're starting to see this big group of young people coming through. And that's a fascinating thing. Do, do, do we think that just being kind and nice and not killing people are going to get us where we need to? Or do we actually have to have, you know, in, you know the, the, the notion of um, an international tribunal on, on war crimes against Indigenous Australians to make our point and make an argument? Sadly, no matter who you are, uh, whether you're Indigenous or non-Indigenous, you can never count on kindness as an absolute. So, no, it's not going to take that. It'll take education. And we're talking about closing the wrong gap. We're, we're constantly saying to children, well, in terms of education, yeah. okay, there are gaps, which I alluded to before in the case of my Aboriginal mother, Monica, who died way too young. Um, there are gaps in health, but it comes once again back to education. Well, I would argue, though, it comes back to land. If you have land, mm. I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate yeah. here, if you have land, yep. everything else flows from that. Yes. If you... If you commercialise land, if you start parcel it up and say you can buy it or sell it and do all that kind of stuff and then remove Indigenous ways of being on land, then all those kind of things are, in fact, symptoms of that. Mm. So, so going back to the idea of sovereignty, if we were to say actually everything is going to start from a conversation about sovereignty and that's our starting point. Well, of course, that's what they've done in Canada mm. where you actually have a card um, that says that you are... Um, Dina, help me out. Do you know... Yeah, the First Nations card. It's it's um, is it uh, confirmed or there's there's a word I can't think of it. You you are either confirmed as being one of the nations of that land or you're not. Mm. And there was a point at which you could be confirmed, and after that you are not. And if you are confirmed, then you're entitled to certain things. And if you're not confirmed, it's a different word. I can't remember what it is. It's it's not also rosy. Like <laughs> none none of these paradigms are going to work on. They're not nuanced enough. It's not. So I'm. I'm not. There's a better recognition. There's a better recognition. Yeah. Better than in the United States, yeah. where Native American yeah. have no. It's well, education. Can I say the United States, the United States has a series of treaties, though. Mm. Whether they were honoured or not is another question. But through the treaties, you can engage through legal discussions and debates. Whereas in Australia, we have no kind of legal structures through which we can talk about sovereignty with the Australian Constitution. There are no structures to do it. And so we've been working off goodwill and education and hope and charm to get us where we need to... And look at compliance, which is the word that I hate the most. If I could take it out of the dictionary, I would. You know, it's a real flatline word and it's everywhere. It's in our education institutions. I mean, I, I work for the largest one here, University of Melbourne. And compliance and statistics and non-aspirational thinking is the bane of my existence. <laughs> you know, um, the, recon um, the Reconciliation Action Plan, for instance, interestingly at the, um, at the University of Melbourne, says that by the year 20... What is it? I figured that I probably will live this long. It's either 30 or 50, but by the year 2030, let's just say conservatively, that... We will have um, we will have parity of employment at the University of Melbourne. It is so unspectacular. <laughs> it's in a very glossy magazine and, and brochure and so forth, but it's so unspectacular. And so, uh, 
I think we need to rewrite history. I think we need to plan for a very, very long-term future and say, what will it take for the person sitting opposite me, who wasn't here 70,000 years ago, but who has been here and her, her family has been here, what will it take? You know, on Friday I had one of those wonderful opportunities to talk to a group of um, teenagers in a high school uh, down in Lee and Gatha. And it's not a very wealthy high school, but really, really lovely kids. Um, and um, anyway, they s it was one of those gigs, you know, they say, well, come and speak at our assembly, and you say yes. And then you find out where Lee and Gather is, and you think, oh, it's two hours drive. <laughs> and then, um, so that's okay, because it's a lovely drive. And then they say, oh, well, why are you here? Why don't you speak to year 12? And while you're here, stay for morning tea and then speak to the whole of year nine. <laughs> Remember that play, you know, All Year Nine Are Animals? Did you remember that? It was on the curriculum in New South Wales. Anyway, <laughs> they're not animals. They're about to take on the world and they've got all the energy for that. But I said to the whole of Year Nine at Mary McKillop, and this will probably come back to bite me, two-thirds of you have Aboriginal heritage. But most of you will never know. And I said, probably don't go home and tell your mum <laughs> that I said that. Uh, but that is, that is most likely true. How this country was populated in the early days. Two-thirds of those kids would have Aboriginal heritage. So do you think we have to continue the breeding program? That's what, what we have to do? Uh, Loacher said it best. We're breeding you out, no worries, <laughs> at the 40th anniversary of... Um, of that referendum, as a matter of fact. So pushing harder, yeah, let's rewrite history. Let's get treaties. And I say treaties. Mm. I, I'm sure this is widely known in this room, but one of my favourite things to surprise people used to be to show a map of Australia, then to show the Tyndale map that you're probably familiar with, with all the language groups, but then to superimpose Europe and the UK on top of this continent and help people to realise that it doesn't even touch the sides. So why on earth you could think that you could get everybody in this continent agreeing on every single thing and that you could throw a blanket over it, I don't know. This is an interesting thing for me. That and that's in the Constitution. Yeah, well, but we, we're, singled out in we're all way. treated in, in the same way too, that, that the notion that all political change for Indigenous Australians has come because we group together and call ourselves one group and that, you know, now we're seeing diversity and seeing different ways of working. And yeah. I've been calling myself Yorta Yorta for many years now. Um, the word Aboriginal and Indigenous even, it's, they're terms of convenience and they're quite generic. Mm. Um, at, you know, and I have colleagues and friends who, who've even done more investigation and they've, they've got grandfather and grandmother's side um, uh, identified and others who don't who don't know and they feel, you know, this was a thing on Friday with these kids. They rounded up all the Indigenous kids and mm. said, here, uh. you know, be inspired. <laughs> and they were all, you know, they're 16-year-old girls and they're, you know, not even 16, 13-year-old girls, very awkward and shy and whatever. And each one of them I had an individual conversation with. And each one of them said, we don't know. We don't know yet our family history. We just know that there was a grandmother or we just know this. And I guess myself coming to Aboriginal culture through stolen generation um, pathway. Boy, that's a really generic word, but anyway, I've never used that before tonight. I better have a drink. But <laughs> being stolen generation, having to come to my culture from outside and 
and come back in. So I guess I can have a conversation with them, which is helpful. But I am very interested to know what will reunite Australia as one people. And it's, it's not what we are going to learn about you, it's what you need to learn about us. Yeah. That's the gap. That, that, yeah, that gap, I'm saying that most, in, most conversations around Indigenous Australia is what Indigenous Australia lacks. But in fact, if we turn it around and say, what does Indigenous Australia have to offer in terms of land care mm. and ideas of long-term sustainable kind of farming of the land? And I use the word farming because Indigenous people farm. That's what Bruce's book is all yeah. about. It's when I start raving on about it, they say, what's it about? And you say, agriculture. And that just loses them for a moment. And then I just say, it it basically blows Terranos out of the water. It blows hunter-gatherer out of the water. It blows nomadic out of the water. And when you do that, then you can say, hang on a minute, this isn't our, this isn't our space. It was never paid for. It was never paid for. I'm gonna pull us together and go, the food's out, so let's go Ooh. grab a, a feed. Um, and we'll come back and we'll open up the conversation. I know everyone's been writing furiously, little notes and bits and pieces of things. So we'll open up the conversation and get some questions and some discussion along the way. So let's just say, grab some food and we'll have, have conversations wherever you are with the people around you. And we'll come back and make sure in about 15 minutes, 20 minutes, we'll open it up again. And, and can I say, this man here is getting on a plane bound for Berlin at 9.30. No, 9.30 you have to leave. I have to leave at 9.30 so I can catch an 11 o'clock flight to Berlin. So we have to solve this whole thing in like less than an hour and a half. Yeah, yeah, don't feel sorry for me. <laughs>